Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Apuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on probably it's a Thursday. We don't know what day it is. Because we're on vacation. We're on vacation. Uh, July 27th, 2023. We are uh, on Block Island. Block Island, which is both a place and a state of mind. So, you know, we're completely out of it. More than usual. Because Block Island is Block Island. It's a world apart. We're sitting here on a day which is hot. I mean, I understand the mainland. You told me it's dangerously hot. And for Block Island, it's hot. And yet at the same time... 25 mile per hour winds something like that yes so it's hard to stand up in fact uh part of our clothesline yeah. blew down it, the wind uh took the lines like the whole screw right out of the wood clotheslines are a big appliance in block island so that's a big deal mm. but i mean mainly when you're on vacation you don't know what day it is it doesn't matter you, you don't have to be in that. block island it's, what about block island block island is uh we we like it, we love it, we come back, and it's uh, it's a world unto itself. It's like but here's going the to weird different thing. Places. What's the weird thing? Normally, when we do the Block Island broadcast, yeah. we have the family all gathered around. That's right. we, we've, we've outsmarted that situation. We've learned from experience. We have Hazi is we had Hazi up here with Nico and Granger the last few days, and believe me, to get Hazi to sit in one place quietly during a broadcast is not the best use of Hazi's time. Let me put it to you that way. Uh, wonderful having Ozzy here, but his broadcasting career has yet to take off, I think. Is that, is that a fair statement? Right, but his uh, kicking in the sand and water I think is already taking off. It is. I think he's much more suited to television than, than as a television personality than uh, than radio. Okay. And that, that's that's what I'm thinking. We're failing him in that regard. We need a television show. He, he uh, presents a, a strong visual impression. But uh, we had a great time with Hazi and his parents, and uh, we've been having a great time in Block Island. Um, no complaints, right? Right. But but it's going to be a different time because uh, it's not the huge crowd. No, no. We have a lighter We usually crowd. have to deal with. Well, Sadie's so. joining us. Sadie's yeah. joining us in a few days. She's so going to do that mile swim. Yes, as she does. Which it. may be challenging. Not to I her. mean, it's really windy here. Yeah. Well, the weather can be iffy on the mile swim, but I, I assume the wind is going to die down by then. But, uh, you know, Sadie's kind of uh, can handle anything. I mean, whether they cancel the swim is something else. But whatever they throw at Sadie, she can handle it. So not worried about that. But we're here for the fresh air. Yeah, we're getting plenty of fresh air. And And humidity. We're here for the humidity. Um, Okay, so anyway, having a great time in Block Island. But it's not as if we're tuned out to developments on the mainland. And, you know, we're very... uh, or current, as we were saying, when it comes to, uh, you know, the latest trends, the latest uh, films, movies, whatever. We're right on top of things, right? Yeah. No? Not really? Here's... Okay. So we're going to talk first about the two big movies, the uh, Oppenheimer movie and the Barbie movie, which we haven't seen. But that doesn't stop us because uh, we have the story behind the movies. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Right. Well, ma- mainly... Uh... Mainly what? We hold off on seeing movies in the summer yeah. because you never know what movie might show up at the local theater well, Block in Island Block Island. Well, is going to have Barbie yeah. and uh, they're going to have uh, Oppenheimer. And the interesting thing about their having Oppenheimer is that, uh, you know, whatever the, what's that called again? The big uh, movie, the IMAX, the IMAX theater. They say the way to see Oppenheimer is in IMAX. Whatever the opposite of IMAX is, 
that's where the Block Island Theater is. It's like watching it in like a relative's playroom or something like that in an old Super 8 movie projector. It's primitive. It's extremely primitive. Extremely primitive. Although they did um, raise enough money to get the digital equipment. Well, it's digital, equipment. but, but, the, uh, you know, but the sound like, is nothing. Well, yeah, it's There's pretty people much milling around. There's, somebody hung a sheet. Yeah, and cars <laughs> cars go by and flash their lights or something. You see it on the screen. It's, it's going to be the opposite of that, but that's okay. We'll see. We'll see. We haven't seen it. But here's what we have to say about it. We, that doesn't stop us. So there was an article in the, in the journal that's very interesting about the writing of the Oppenheimer biography upon which the movie is based. How's that? Uh, which was, not bringing it up just to talk about Oppenheimer, but it's an extremely interesting article. Uh, and the book, of course, was called American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And I, I think, uh, well, I, forget, I don't even know what the movie's called might be called American Prometheus, might be called Oppenheimer. It doesn't make any difference. The, the point is that it took an enormously long time Who wrote it? to write this book. Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. Okay. You ask me as if we know these people. We don't. No, but, but I, mean, I mean, should somebody be listening to this and wanting to yeah, okay. read the book? The book is now a you're, bestseller you're again. You're going to talk about these guys who wrote it, right? Yeah, yes. Am I right? So yes, the book is now a bestseller again. But here's the story behind it. Martin Sherwin uh, signed a contract to write this biography uh, to be paid $70,000 by uh, Knopf, the publisher, in 1980, March 1980. All right? Well, that was his advance. That was his advance. I don't know if it was a total or if it was advanced. I'm not sure. It doesn't make any difference. Not about the money. The point is, 1980, he gets to work on this. And he, even he had reservations about it because Oppenheimer was considered a very formidable subject, very hard to cover, a great intellectual, uh, and very tough to write a biography. He did not think he was seasoned enough to do it. Turns out he probably was not. He was. He kept doing research and research and research on it, and he couldn't really start writing the book. Uh, his son uh, says at one point they had a cartoon that was on the refrigerator from the New Yorker, a guy at a typewriter and he's surrounded by stacks of papers. His wife is in the distance uh, and she says, uh, she's saying something to him and he responds, finish it? Why would I want to finish it? Well, all he's doing is researching it. And at a certain point, they realized that he needed help. So he found that in a very good friend of his uh, named Kai Bird. Um, who he invited to co-write the book with him. Um, and uh, Kai Bird was reluctant because he had done this kind of thing before with somebody else. They had a falling out. He said he not only lost a contract, but he lost a very close friend. He didn't want to lose Martin Sherman as a friend. Uh, but he was lured into doing it, and it turned out that they worked extremely well together. Uh, Sherwin was just too crazy about research, and he sent stacks and stacks of paper to Bird uh, with the admonition that he still had to do more research. Bird looked through this stuff, and he said, oh, my God, he doesn't have to do more research, and just started writing. He would write drafts of chapters. He would send them to Sherwin. Sherwin would say, that's pretty good, but you left out X, Y, and Z, and write it in, send it back to Bird, and Bird would say, great, next chapter. And they moved along like that, and they worked beautifully together. Having said that, it still took them four years to write the book. So, again, the first contract, advance, whatever, uh, is signed in uh, 1980. The book is completed um, 2004. took 24 years to write the book. Okay. All right? It's published at 700-some-odd pages. 
it wins the Pulitzer Prize mm -hmm. for biography. It's considered, you know, a great, great book. Boston Globe said the book stands as an Everest among the mountains of books on the bomb project and is an achievement not likely to be surpassed or equal. Uh, but you said you were tempted to read the book? I'm still tempted to read the book. but 700, 700 pages. Yeah, that's, why, that's why tempted is one thing and reading is something else. So who knows? Who knows? It probably, this guy has too much detail, I'm sure, about Oppenheimer. But Oppenheimer is a very interesting figure. You know, he's a great intellectual. He leads the atomic bomb project. They say they accomplish it on an extremely tight, almost impossible time schedule under an enormous pressure. And then what becomes the focal point of the book and the movie, as I understand it, they describe it as the so-called epicenter, is that he's rewarded, uh, as he should not have been rewarded, by being uh, criticized by the House of Un-American Activities and losing his security clearance because his friendship with some people who had communist leanings. And as they put it here, he is like put out the pasture in Princeton, New Jersey. And you and I both know that he became the head of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. And the people of Princeton don't regard that as being put out the pasture. But that's another, <laughs> another story. And, um, and so, and I think of him now yeah, uh, all the time. Not just because of the movie, but because the swimming pool I still belong to yeah. is adjacent, is is pretty much on um, Institute of Advanced oh, that's Study right. That's right. Um, property. Right. So I go right by, you know. Um, where I put on my work. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, lived probably. I yeah. don't know exactly where you I mean, uh, Sherwin actually passed away uh, in October 2021, even though he, he knew the movie was being made. And uh, Kai Bird met, had met with Christopher Nolan, and Nolan convinced him that he was the guy to make the movie, and they let him use the book. And uh, Kai Bird, who has seen the movie, says he thinks it's a great movie. Nolan did a fantastic job. Um, so, looking forward to that. But you have a story that's at least as interesting about a movie that's much more popular, which is the Barbie well, movie. Well, yeah, I, I'm saving the Barbie movie. Yeah. To see with Sadie, or Sadie was saving it. Sadie was tempted to go see it uh, on her own That's in a North Carolina. Island That's a block island And movie. I said, well, it's going to be a block island. Uh, yeah. We should probably see this together. Yeah. And it's not that I'm a huge Barbie fan, yeah. okay? And it's not that I even think I'll like the movie, mm -hmm. okay? I did have a Barbie growing up. Mm -hmm. I did not have the um, iconic Barbie with the ponytail. I had bubble cut Barbie. Okay, I'm looking at you blankly. I didn't know there was an iconic Barbie. But okay. Oh, yeah. There's a particular Barbie has a long ponytail. And uh, I, I don't know. The bubble cup Barbie with red hair may be very valuable because there are probably fewer of them. Where, where is it now? Um, it's, it's actually in the computer room in a oh, box. Oh, we have it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Our ship has come in, Tamsin. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, we well, we have all the Barbies because... Uh, they were given to Sadie to play with when oh, she was growing no up. No kidding, no kidding. But, um, you know. We and, have more than one and, Barbie? And my mother made clothes for that Barbie. I have handmade clothes. Do we have more than one Barbie? Well, I don't know that we have more than one Barbie, but we have a Ken and a Midge, mm. her best friend, Look, and Skipper. You know what? I, I have two words yeah. for you. Three words. Antiques, Rosa. That's two words. That's no, what we're going to no. be. No, no. I suspect there are zillions the of uh, people my age with a Barbie. You know, in slightly disheveled condition, who uh, okay. who are thinking that they have a gold mine on their hands, and I sincerely doubt that that's the case. But it brings 
back a lot of memories. But mm -hmm. it, I mean, it is a curious doll. We'll talk about that more in, the, in, in a minute. But there was a fun article in uh, the Wall Street Journal mm -hmm. about uh, Mattel co-founder Ruth Han Handler, mm -hmm. who you know basically invented the Barbie. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, a lot of what's in the article was based on a 2009 biography uh, called Barbie and Ruth by Robin Gerber. Now, that, mm -hmm. that sounds like it might be a fun biography to read. I'm sure it's less than 700 pages. Yeah. And it's mostly about building this business, which she built with her husband. Her husband uh, was originally uh, went by uh, the name uh, Izzy Handler. Mm-hmm. She convinced him to use his less Jewish-sounding uh, middle name, Elliot. Mm -hmm. Okay, and they joined together with uh, a guy named Matt Matson. Yeah. Okay. Yes. To, and and made the uh, business Mattel. Right. Like Matthew, mm -hmm. Matt Matson, and Elliot. Got it. You, you yeah. get it? Okay. I got it. All right. And she was really, uh, I guess they were the guys making stuff. Mm -hmm. Her husband was, uh, you know, basically an artist starting out. She was a stenographer for Paramount. And, uh, her theory was, if he can make it, I can sell it. Mm -hmm. And this article says, basically, um, she she broke the rules of her business in three ways. How she sold toys, when she sold them, and who bought them. Mm -hmm. And this is what made her a huge success. Uh, and uh, one of the things that's most interesting is, from the get-go, yeah. they was their advertising program, which was new and different because it was year round mm -hmm. okay the people at uh you know abc i guess it was mm -hmm. talked her into talked her into year round advertising on a new show called the mickey mouse club yeah and that was going to change things uh, um heretofore people uh, toy manufacturers toy sellers mm -hmm. basically were advertising around the holidays. Right. And um, this, so she's the one who, you know, Disney wants a commitment for year round and uh, she goes for that and it changes everything. Okay. Also, who she's selling to. Uh, again, uh, it, the con conventional wisdom had uh, people selling to the parents, okay? She was focusing her uh, advertising to the children, get the children in while they're watching the Disney, the Mickey Mouse Club. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the kids can't live without it, they're, you know, the parents are going to end up buying it. Um, and uh, then... Uh, so, so that was basically, you know, the key strategies year round, sell to the kids and not the parents. Okay. Um, so sounded pretty interesting to me. What also was, I thought was pretty interesting was how, how Barbie came about, where they found the idea for Barbie. And that was on a vacation in Europe mm -hmm. in a German adult store. And apparently there was this, uh, gag gift popular for uh, German bachelor parties. Uh, and uh, that gave her the idea for Barbie. She puts together um, 
you know, the mock-up or whatever, takes it to the 1959, uh, you know, toy fair, uh, where people are promoting their new products and they say, no, 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 uh, no mom's going to buy, uh, their daughter, a doll with breasts. And, uh, you know, they were completely wrong, completely wrong. Obviously. What were they doing at a German, uh, adult, uh, store? Family vacation, oh. looking for souvenirs. <laughs> okay. Research, research. They, you know, they're probably trying to write uh, Well, look, it's all... Off. Yeah, yeah, probably write it off. But uh, it's all... But, I should say that when she first started um, advertising, yeah. and they're, you know, putting all this money on the line, like right. $500,000. Right. And the first six weeks, and they're advertising something called the Cowboy Guitar. No, mm -hmm. no, no, it was the Burp Gun. Burp gun the yeah. Burp Gun. The first six weeks, there's a six-week delay mm -hmm. Um between when the marketing, uh, the ad agencies or whatever got their mm -hmm. um, data from, uh, you know, the stores, etc. She was going crazy. They, they had no idea if anything was selling. Okay. Turns out things were selling, but she is, she was so shaken up by this, uh, you know, lag that she kind of puts together her own army of data, data ga gathering uh, people to go out to all the stores across yeah, the country and see. But that's what really not personal. Big retailers do that now. They, they do it now, but yeah. this was 1950s. Well, look, there's no question that uh, the success of Barbie has as much to do with marketing by this woman as anything else. And to tell you the truth, this is the story of the movie too, if you ask me. I mean, they market the movie brilliantly, exactly yeah. across yeah. all yeah. avenues yeah, yeah, yeah. for all types. And not everybody's going to like the movie, but everybody's going to talk about it. And uh, there you go. They, they, yeah, they hit critical mass. I mean, it, I haven't even read reviews, but it yeah, seems that it's a, it's I, but it's not some... a movie for for little girls. Yes, and yet little girls seem excited about it. Right, uh, but uh, mostly it's going to appeal uh, to uh, grown-up girls who used to play with Barbie and there, imagine that Barbie icon as something worthy. Yeah, there are look there are a lot of there are plenty of positive reviews. The movie, some medium, and there uh, there are some very negative reviews, but. Uh, but it doesn't make any difference. I mean, it's got a tremendously broad level of appeal, broad demographics. Not every demographic, but broad demographics. And it's talked about forever and it's marketed brilliantly. But a lot of people don't think the Barbie is such a good thing. I know, but that helps sell the movie too. Okay. Because they make, the theme of the movie is how they deal with that. You know, how they uh, take, you know, the lemons and make it into lemonade. I mean, it's a theme in the movie how she confronts the notion that it's it's mixed bag, that it's, uh, you know, there's some negative uh, connotations of the Barbie image, and that's the subject of the movie. Draw yeah, I movie. just never took her that seriously as a role model, I guess. Good, good move. And a bubble cut was a problem. <laughs> I would think the bubble cut... Also, uh, I have to admit, pink is my worst color. Oh, that's, well, that's... I don't know what to say about that. Uh, I think Sadie goes for pink, so you'll be in good hands. Oh, yeah. Many women do. Yes. So, so and, and as of as we know, yeah. What? Men too. Yeah. Oh yeah. You remember so, uh, yeah, the article whole, uh, years ago, hundred years power. ago. Yeah. Well, I think men can still like pink. They can still they, like it. They say I mean, if you just uh, hand uh, people from other cultures just random like clothing and things to choose from, very often, yeah, men go for the go for pink. All right. You know, the the brighter, stronger, what we would see as, you know. Imagine as more feminine colors if they have no cultural pre-inclination. Okay. All right. I have nothing against pink. 
Um, speaking of pink. Yes, yeah, speaking of... In well, the pink, those Mets. Well, I, I'm not going to dwell on the Mets, but, you know, it's funny. So the other big movie that came out a little while ago, the Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny. Turns out that movie didn't do that well. I hadn't been following it, but it turns out it's now considered sort of a failure. I mean, it made money... Uh, I'm sorry, it sold tickets, but didn't sell enough tickets to make a profit. Uh, and that's, of course, what the game's about. Um, and uh, so there's an article in the journal about uh, Indiana Jones and the Mets. How do we do this? And the New York Mets. Why? Number one, because New York Mets, a month ago, the Mets being the Mets, had a bobblehead doll. They, not saving it for Barbie or for Oppenheimer, but they did it for Indiana Jones. So the Indiana Jones bobblehead doll and uh, they so now it's a collector, collector's item collector's because item. it was such a failure. Well, I don't know if it's going to be a collector's item, but the real point is the movie's not a success and the Mets are not a success. And according to Joe Queen in the journal, you know, there are striking parallels between the two situations. Such as? Well, such as, first of all, both, uh, both enterprises took more than $300, $300 million to establish. In other words, the movie cost $300 million plus, the Mets cost $300 million plus. Uh, two is they both uh, relied on older talents, Harrison Ford on the one hand, and the Mets, you know, obviously uh, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander on the other. Uh, and he has several other things, which uh, are really, in my mind, uh, not really meaningful parallels, although they're usually they're a little stronger than what you see in a normal New York Times op-ed piece, honestly. But uh, you know, there are some parallels. It's uh, they brought out. Uh, and older people that try to do it one more time and uh, it didn't work out. So you have a $300 million failure. There you go. Okay? And you? And uh, the Mets, look, I don't mind. The Mets aren't, if you're a Mets fan, you don't count on success. You, you can't, you have to know how to lose. You watch a team lose for 25, 30 years. You don't say, oh my God, we're not winning this year. I'm abandoning the team. It's, it's, it's uh, character building. Yeah. Ruth Handler was a big uh, believer in being risking failure. Yeah, well, the Mets uh, do that well. <laughs> so, you know, you can't uh, really have great success without being comfortable with a lot of failure. Right. And uh, you also can have a lot of failure by being comfortable with a lot of failure. And the Mets uh, <laughs> basically have, have handled that beautifully. Beautiful. All right. You had some food items. Yeah. Um, so... Here's the thing. So we you know we're uh, we're on vacation. We're renting a, a house, right? Right. And so, uh, you know, lots of times when you're on vacation, sometimes you want to make fun things, right. and uh, but you don't have all the all the you know a vast uh, array of ingredients that you can get everywhere, or even the or the equipment. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the suggestions in the New York Times was a recipe for salted caramel ice cream that you don't need. Any kind of social equipment. You don't need to churn. Okay. And the ingredient list mm -hmm. is very limited. All you really need is a can or jar of dulce de leche, mm -hmm. heavy cream, and sea salt. Well, that's nothing. That is nothing. Except not every store has dulce de leche. Well, we did have I'll to hunt you, around I'll for dulce de leche. We had to hunt around for it in California, which you, you would think... You would think it would be all over the place. It would be like the epicenter yeah, of yeah. dulce de leche, yeah. which is uh, basically a caramelized version of evaporated milk. Mm -hmm. Okay, Con sweetened condensed milk, right. to be uh, precise. Uh, and Which I understand, one way to make sweetened condensed milk into dulce de leche is you boil the can. 
in water for like ever. Really? Yeah. Although I've heard of it, um, situations where the can uh, explodes or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I, I was never really tempted to do that myself. Right. Anyway, so I, I will say not on the Block Island vacation, but on the sojourn to um, Ventura mm-hmm. to meet Hazel. Right. Uh, I did make the salted caramel ice cream from the New York Times. You made it in California. That's yeah, it. I made yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. As Just, a guest. You know, all you need is some way to whip up the cream. Right. It was unremarkable. Yeah, it was all right. It, it was bad. not great. It was very creamy. It was I, a little I, rich. I have some... It's a little uh, heavy. I have some, you know, uh, bones to pick with the how the recipe is written, which was a little bit stupid. But the point is, it doesn't have a lot of sugar in it. Okay, not yeah. a lot of added sugar. Right, I remember it didn't, didn't taste okay. that sweet. So that is, no, but it's not just that. Yeah. Sugar is one of the things that keeps ice cream from being too hard. Right, but it, Sugar I, I, or if you have right. liqueur in it, uh, certain things like yes, that. I do remember. Any time you, you make you, ice cream that's low in sugar, right. when it's frozen, it is really frozen. That's why if you put alcohol in it. Uh, right. Like brandy it in it, it helps keep it right. uh, at a good right. consistency. But we made a family-friendly version, exactly as uh, described in the recipe in and, the New York and Times. And I thought it was okay, but when you froze it, it was a brick. It, yeah, it was a brick. Right. So maybe it's one of those things where if you're on Block Island and the freezer is not really that cold, it kind of works out. You know what's good? Okay. Going back to California in a few weeks, it will still be there. So you'll have a second well, chance. Well, that's a sad thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You'll have a second chance to try it out. But it was not. Uh, it's it was not, not a universally acclaimed. So well, I felt bad about that. Well, there was the recipe in the Times today: make your own baguettes, uh, which you just look at it and you just say, "Oh my God, really?" And they seem to have some understanding that. Uh, I mean, the recipe had seventeen steps, with several proofs and uh, twenty-four hours. But I think we've seen uh, yeah. other recipes in the New York Times with like thirty-five steps. Oh no, not thirty-five. Yeah, 30, 35. This is, was only one full page. They've had recipes in there that are two can, full pages. You can put an addition on your house in 35 steps. I mean, that's crazy. But 17 steps is, is too many. But in any event, no one's doing that. They're just buying uh, buying a baguette. you got to be crazy. I don't even... Well, maybe... You, you reach state, you step 15 and, the, and it says, this one's tricky. And you're saying to yourself, my God, I've been doing this for two days, occupying my entire life, and now this one's tricky? It might not all work out. I think maybe if you're somewhere where there is no hope for good bread, yeah, it's worth the effort, uh, and you have nothing else to do. Yeah, not me. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> all right. So go ahead. You had uh, the answer to our prayers, which is this is not the answer to all our prayers. Uh, it's, uh, it's something. It's just an article saying yeah, the, the title in the uh, New York Times is "The Kurds Are Back." Cottage cheese is having a moment. Yeah. Okay. And I had already heard this. Apparently, it's all over the social media. Uh, and uh, that's just really funny because when I was growing up, cottage cheese was punishment. Yeah. You know what? Oh, really? Oh, yeah. We had. Um, I we, thought people ate a lot of cottage we, cheese. They did. They did. Mainly, it was a diet food. Right. It was highly claimed as diet food. We had food. it with jello or something. And we had it every meal, we had a salad. Is okay? that right? With so we had either a normal salad, you know, okay. with iceberg right. lettuce yeah. and uh, French dressing, yeah. whatever that was, that orange stuff. Okay. Um, or we had a half of a apricot, yeah. canned apricot or pear. Yeah. All right. With 
cottage cheese in the center on a leaf of uh, And they call that iceberg. a salad, right? And that was a salad. And wow. so in my mind, I, I really uh, never liked the canned fruits. Yeah. And uh, the cottage cheese was sort of the best part of that. And yeah. still, I didn't think it was that great. But I do like cottage cheese now. I only like one kind of cottage cheese, and that's friendship cottage cheese. Right. Full fat. Mm-hmm. And um, I eat it pretty religiously with fresh New Jersey cantaloupe mm-hmm. during the season or in the winter with uh, grapefruit mm-hmm. uh, slices okay. that I have supremed, if you know what that means. Don't. But, I, I, okay. think I, I think I know. Another time. Uh, but anyway, I, you, you know. Pull it, it out of the sleeve of the, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it turns out yeah. that, uh, you know. I mean, it, it did have a bad reputation for many years because it, it just was like, uh, you know, why do diet I, food. Why do diet I food. Food. And of course, it doesn't work. But it's loaded with calcium. It's lower in, um, you know, in terms of the amount of protein it gives you. It's lower in calories than, you know, X amount of chicken and uh, the same amount of uh, Greek yogurt or... Uh, something three eggs it's the same amount of protein as three eggs so it's not a bad option actually so, so why do i associate the uh you know the high point of cottage cheese with sort of like the initiate initiation of barbie about the same time like yeah, late 50s yeah, early yeah, 60s yeah, I think it's that's no a, coincidence that yeah, they're, it's a 50, they're having thing. a moment at yeah. the same moment i think the, the one place where cottage cheese showed up with some good reception in our house was when it was you could beat it into jello to beat it into jello you could beat it into jello and, what and it would like? get, you would end up with this sort of creamy oh really jello gelatin thing and and sometimes with mac um with um you know what are the little orange sections, Mandarin orange sections yeah. floating around? Maybe even some nuts. So you mean when you, you mean, mean beat it? You mean use a mixer and put it in with the uh, the Jello powder and, and the liquid and everything? Yeah. What do you What do you mean when you say beat it? Beat it sounds violent. So like beating it. Well, into you, you could take like a, a okay, whip and whip yeah, it in. Yeah. All right. Got um, but uh, all right, we could try that. <laughs> yeah, but then you're. I mean, you know. Jello, I guess Jello has its good points when you're trying to get over an illness, but it's really sugar and water and gelatin. Isn't it good for your nails or something like that? The gelatin is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm always, you know, I, I have a positive or was, attitude. You know, what do you mean was? I, you know, all all those uh, precepts we grew up with. You yeah. know that uh, carrots are good for your eyes, gelatin's good for yeah, your nails. Carrots aren't good for your eyes. Really, they're yeah, good for they, your eyes. Yeah, they are. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. Don't to swim after you eat. Uh, not so much. But <laughs> carrots are good for your eyes. All right. So here's something. I don't want to just come out there and say gelatin's still good for you. I, it is. I haven't researched it. It's good it. for your nails. Um, all right. Here we go. Here's an article in the Times called Listeners Tune In to Buy, Sell, Barter, and Bond. It's about local radio, in particular, a local radio format called Tradio, T-R-A-D-I-O, Tradio, okay? Here's the way a Tradio program works on local radio. People call in with an item or a service to swell, swap, or find. The Tradio DJ lets them make their pitches, and in voices often tinged with regional accents, they describe their items and provide a phone number or a pickup address to discuss more specifics 
with any listeners who may be interested. That's okay. radio. Birthday announcements, prayer requests, yard sale notifications, the date and time of the Kiwanis Club Pancake Breakfast. That also comes out during these conversations. But in any so, event, how many how many people actually do this? They say that it's an extremely popular format for local radio across the country. It doesn't mean they. But will I thought do it. local radio barely existed. Well, it barely exists, but this is part of what so they're the doing. So the three people who are listening all it's trade no, 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 with no, no, each no, no, other. No, 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 no. When you say it barely exists, like we have local radio WDVR, which I listen to, in in Pennsylvania. Because it's a different thing. It's amateurish in a lot of ways. They don't have Tradio, but they have everything close to it. They do have, guys are constantly talking about where's the Kiwanis breakfast and, you know, what the church is doing and uh, when you can buy it for a swap sale or something like that. This just adds a notion of people calling, and, and they don't have calling on WDVR, people calling and saying, listen, I have a, a shotgun I'm trying to sell. They do sell shotguns. Uh, or I have a couple of cats I'm trying to get rid of. I mean, they can be your barn cat. I understand it. I I totally understand the concept. I I agree it's charming. Yeah. I just want to know, does anybody really do it? People do it. Or is this just an article? No, no, no. People do it. They mention a whole bunch of stations and a whole bunch of places. When you say local radio is dying, what I think what you're saying is it's not profitable, which it's not, and it's generally nonprofit, which WDVR is, so these are like community bulletin boards, if you will, uh, as much as anything, but they're done in a radio format. You know, the, the DJs at WDVR don't get paid anything. Uh, Again, they're making this all these all, houses. This is all wonderful. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, here, look, and, uh, but the radio, they say, even brings the community that much closer together. A lot of people are very much drawn to it. Um, people sometimes tell sad stories. They say things like, you know, they lost everything. They had a fire or whatever. Other people call in and donate money. As they say in the article, for some of these people, this is more than just buying and selling something. This is the community they're getting. This is how they're getting to talk to somebody. And this is how people are calling to talk to them. And that, there's, there's something to that. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying this is a major development. Uh, we used to say this is something that benefited my mother when she was dealing with QVC. She was talking to somebody on the other line, well, buying and selling with QVC. With the FAN. It is the same People thing. People call with in to have right. a sense of community. Right. Well, okay. you're right. And uh, but this is a format which is uh, in which you, you know, sports is already somewhat you know, complex. This is simpler. I'm just trying to get rid of an old toaster. And they call in and they talk about their toaster. And apparently they, uh, the whole crowd ends up talking about their toaster and they eventually sell their toaster and they barter it or they trade it for a barn cat or something like that. It's, uh, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not Oppenheimer, Damson. It's not that kind of thing. It's not at that level. But uh, apparently, uh, among local radio stations, is becoming an increasingly popular format. All right? Okay. I just wanted you to be aware of that. All right. So uh, we have one obituary, Jack Goldstein, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, passed away. It's just described, you know, it's in the New York Times as a preservationist. Mm-hmm. And it's not like he... Um, I don't have a lot of notable, fascinating things to say about him, except he was highly involved in the whole concept of preserving Broadway theaters. Mm-hmm. And he got involved when they were about to uh, tear down the Helen Hayes Theater and the Morosco Theaters mm-hmm. and, and several others to put up a brand new Marriott uh, Marquis Hotel. Right. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, it was shocking that, uh, you know, these, you know, People saw them as institutions were just going to be leveled. 
Yeah, so that's complicated. Do they talk about uh, the economics of it? I mean, Broadway theaters, I think of Broadway theaters as making money. That's why they're there. Well, it's this was Broadway. in 82. All right, so they weren't making money? I, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't uh, really go into the whole situation, mm-hmm. okay? But uh, obviously the Marriott uh, Corporation had purchased the land mm-hmm. and uh, was ready to tear these down. Mm-hmm. And, and just, you know, so anyway... The obituary goes through the trials and tribulations of you know various uh, groups he was involved with, mm-hmm. with trying to, um, you know, get notice for these theaters and trying to save them. Not because that each one was an amazing architectural, irreplaceable gem visually, okay, but also because those theaters were built at a time before. Um, what do you call it? Uh, Amplified sound. Yeah. Yeah. So that um, you know they had they structurally were created to um, allow somebody to to speak in a whisper on a stage, right? Uh, in uh, you know, and allow hundreds of people to hear them. So mm-hmm. there was all kinds of like uh, um, you know technology really right. embedded in these theaters that. Uh, won't be um, replaced because there's no need. Well, um, yeah, so well, that's it, a point. But anyway, it's, it's that same old story of how much of the past do you just want to hold on to? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, what well, purpose does it really yeah. well, serve? Look, I find this pretty complicated. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of, we've, we've been to a lot of Broadway theaters, uh, and a lot of old Broadway theaters are terribly uncomfortable. I mean, because people were smaller. That has to be the reason, right? So you're really crammed in. And uh, sometimes, you, you know, it's a little scary. Or it's, it's so vertical. You know, talk about stadium seating. You know, there's, you feel like you're, if you lean forward, you're going to tumble about 400 feet. Um, and then there were other theaters that were renovated. And I think of the one that we go to at City Center, uh, where it's a beautiful you know, interior. Uh, well, it's a crazy interior. It's crazy, yeah, over the top. You know, it's wonderful that they preserved that. And, but, and they preserved it, and, and, and we didn't but love... But again, the seating is weird. We didn't love the redesign, but they did redesign it, and uh, so they were working at the fixtures. It's another, yeah. another... Well, truly, approach. a lot of these old uh, Broadway theaters have uh, um, fun murals on the walls, right. all kinds of over-the-top... Uh, uh, architectural detail and decoration right. and gilding and, and things that, uh, you know, we would never be interested in this day and age. But, it, you know, for some people, it's a wonderful step back in time. It's some kind of contact mm-hmm. with the history of uh, theater. And I, I really I embrace that idea yeah. because a lot of what is preserved is not that accessible to the public, right. really. So I'm always happy when there are these public buildings that you get to experience this but But it's you know it's a complicated matter uh economically as you point out you need money i mean the city center one has the money so not only do you know do you have this beautiful theater maintained even though they could use a couple more aisles um you if you look around on the second floor not the floor where we're normally on there's a there's a whole photographic exhibit of stuff in the theater that's uh you know taking photographs of you know what it was you know 30 40 50 years ago and and there are all kinds of things that have been maintained that have historical relevance with respect to theater history so uh you know if you have the money you can do it 
But anyway, so he, so Jack Goldstein was involved mm-hmm. in this. He was also involved in tickets, TKTS, mm-hmm. where they sell the half price tickets. Right. Okay. And he was involved in uh, putting out the bid mm-hmm. for the new structure that ends up including mm-hmm. those wonderful stairs yeah. that they have now in the center of Broadway that, uh, you know, I think are terrific yeah. uh, with people sitting there and uh, all kinds of events happen in that area. Yeah. And he does mention when, you know, when they, you know, the people were attached to that original sort of primitive structure right. uh, where the tickets were sold. So it was and like were, scaffolding so, and you yeah, went, so walk around a, you know, a In this line. case, he's saying goodbye to the to the old and welcoming right. the new. Um, but anyway, um, he uh, turns out he was also an antique dealer for a good deal of his life. So right. he, he was a man steeped in the past in uh, many respects. Yeah, but he also clearly had a sense of public space. And public space is kind of a tricky thing. And that goes to the theater and it goes to the TKTS. The, the right. notion that People benefit uh, a little bit outside of the capitalist, capitalistic mainstream by by a certain kind of public space, by a certain investment in public space, and uh, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I do think that TKTS is a perfect example of a highly functional, workable public space, and doesn't even feel like it came to the great sacrifice of anything. Mm-hmm. It's not like they tore down buildings for it. it might be prime real estate, but even so, uh, it does give you a great center. To all the activity in those Broadway theaters, and a great um, it captures all these people moving through and gives it a liveliness and energy it otherwise wouldn't have. You imagine if you just sort of walk through and people were looking at their phones and saying, oh, "I think I have to make a right on Forty Sixth Street." That would be nothing. But when you have this center with a TTKTS and you have the wide open space for a minute, and you have all the Broadway theaters around and all the tourists looking up at the sky, and you know everybody's gone crazy every night. There's something to that, I think. I mean, for for anyone who doesn't know, yeah. it, the discount ticket booth, is, yeah. I mean, it used to be a very important way to get uh, cheap tickets. You oh. could get for half price the tickets that hadn't sold from various theaters. Right. You would stand online right. for hours yeah. uh, to get these tickets. Now there are all kinds of ways to do that online. Right. Um, it's not quite the uh, center of the discount universe that it used to be. Uh, but it, you know, it was key. There was that period, you know, when we were in college in the '70s, where Broadway was kind of seemed to be hanging by a thread. I mean, I would, I remember reading the New York Times and seeing very few ads yeah. for plays, very few. Well, you see it, and now you see now very you, few well, ads. Well, because it's not necessary. <laughs> the ads are all online. Yeah. But um, so uh, Broadway's yeah. doing all right. Actually, I understand that Broadway is now at ninety percent level. Uh, as compared to what it was pre-pandemic. What, what's not doing well is, is off-Broadway. And there's a million reasons for that that we could talk about. Next time. Next time. We'll talk about All that. All right. Well, time. let's get back in the ocean here. Yes. That's it's- what we do here. Just so people know, we're either on our bicycles or in, their own, or, uh, in the ocean swimming or uh, we're doing the podcast. It's one of those three. Right. So here we go. All right. See. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Bon voyage.